I would try to defend myself and say I'm a couple steps ahead of you, but I did. Uh, I'm the guy whose phone was talking. Logan, I'm sorry, you came up to speak. In my, I was trying to shut it off, and I don't know what I was doing, but it was talking to me. Uh, I, was, I don't know why I was just thinking about this before, but then when you kind of indirectly called me old, it reminded me that. So I have a three-year-old daughter, Hadley, and the other night, or the other morning, she got up, and we were sitting in the, in the living room, uh, laying on the couch together, and she was sitting there, and she was talking to me, and then she said, Dad, did you just get your... So she's three. So she doesn't know she's about to trash talk me. But she said, did you just cut your hair? I said, no, not really. Why? She said, why don't you have any hair on your forehead? I was like, shut up, little girl. <laughs> so I was about to throw down with the three-year-old right there. Um, <clears throat> that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Um, I actually don't really know anything about Young Life. And uh, I mean, I've heard of Young Life. I don't... I'm kind of new to the area, and so it's not quite as big where I'm from. Um, I don't really know what you usually do on, what is it, Tuesday night? Um, or what people usually talk about, so I hope this is what you're hoping for. Uh, actually, if you would have asked me 18 months ago, or if you would have told me 18 months ago, I'd be sitting uh, in this huge house. I was trying to figure out like, who you guys had to kill to get this place. <laughs> this is crazy. This is fantastic. I don't even know where we are for sure. Um, if you would have told me 18 months ago that I would be sitting in this, whatever this room is, uh, sharing with some guys in Young Life College at Oregon State University, I would have been really confused. Um, I spent my whole life, uh, I was born and raised in eastern Iowa. Um, I'm learning out here that people don't know where that is. So I say I'm from Iowa, and they're like, oh, you and us like the Buckeyes. I'm like, well, that's actually Ohio. Uh, and you guys don't confuse us with Idaho. But everywhere else in the country, if I say I'm from Iowa, I'm either a Buckeyes fan or that's the potato state, isn't it? Um, but somehow we get lost. Nobody has any idea where we are. Um, and my family and I, we, I, I have uh, four kids. I have a nine-year-old boy, Toby, seven-year-old boy, Parker. Uh, they're both playing baseball. They just had to buy their first nut cuts. So that's pretty sweet. Uh, my three-year-old girl is Hadley, and then we have a newborn, Parker. Um, so we moved out here from Iowa uh, in August, and so I'm getting used to being a Northwesterner. I've never been here before. Uh, a year ago, a year and a half ago, right before Thanksgiving, I got a phone call. So I've been working for the Navigators for 11 years now. Um, for six years, I was the director of a ministry at the University of Northern Iowa, and uh, one of our kind of one of our national leaders called me and said, "Hey, you know, are you sitting down?" I said, Why? They said, well, we were wondering if you and Katie would pray about uh, moving out and helping relaunch the Oregon State Navigators. Um, and I, like, <laughs> I have to, I make, I make fun of you guys for not knowing where, I, where I'm from, but uh, I have to be honest, I had to actually go to the map and remember if Oregon or Washington was on top. <laughs> I couldn't remember for sure. I was pretty sure Washington was by Canada, but I had to double check that. Um, and then I thought I knew Oregon State, but then when I heard it was the Beavers, I was confused, and I realized I had you confused with Oklahoma State, because they're, they're orange and black, too. I don't know if you guys are nothing like Oregon or Oklahoma State, or not even close to it, but that's who I thought you were. Um, and I honestly, so we flew out a year ago, December, to uh, check out Corvallis, check out Oregon State, and kind of seek God on, God, are you asking us to move out here and be a part of this? And... Uh, I, don't, I honestly had no idea what I would expect, what, what to expect. I, I, 
When I thought of dudes at Oregon State University, I can only picture three things. Beards and flannel and a guy carrying an axe. I thought like you guys were all lumberjacks. Um, or like the guy with real skinny jeans also wearing flannel. That's confusing to me. Uh, and actually, he also has a beard, but it's a different kind of beard. But he's got the, the tight shaved hair with the, like the hipster hair. We got one of those. I thought the whole room would be filled with you guys and axes. But, and you got the skinny jeans. He's got it. You're my guy. That's what I thought. I'd, you're what I thought I'd find. Um, and then... Are you from California? <laughs> uh, and I also thought I'd find surfer dudes, and I realized that's not even close up here. So, uh, but is that you? <laughs> this is my guy. <laughs> You're what I thought the West Coast was. I've never been here before. Uh, and then I thought I'd see a lot of dreadlocks. I just thought there'd be a lot of that. Um, and I did see a lot of dreadlocks. Not, not, I've been disappointed, though, not as many as I expected. Um, so I honestly didn't know what I was, what I would, ex, what to expect. But when I got on campus and got to walk around, and we began kind of praying about whether God would would ask us to move out here, um, I was found myself kind of in a cool way underwhelmed because one of the first things I saw was a group of guys walking with gym shorts and uh, hooded sweatshirts. The sweatshirt was a different color and it had a different letters on it that I'm used to. Um, but kind of felt God saying, like, if you would come and be faithful, uh, people in the Pacific Northwest are, are really similar to people in the, in the heartland, and they need similar things. Um, so we're really excited to be here, and that's actually what I want to think about with you. Um, I realize when you walk on campus and you look around, um, you don't see anything out of the ordinary. The, most of you, I, I'm actually curious to hear this, how many people, is every, how many are from Oregon? Okay, and then probably some California. You got one Cal- Are you the only California? Two California. All right. I'm going to meet you afterwards. I don't think I know anybody from California. So I'm going to be my first Californian friend. Uh, uh, when I think of California, I just think of Saved by the Bell. Did you ever watch that growing up, or am I way older than you? Okay. Zach Morris. That's my reference point. Um, but that, that's what we saw when we were on campus. And I'm wondering, I want to think with you, what do you see when you look at your campus? And we specifically want to uh, ask the question, uh, when Jesus looks at our campus, what does he see? And how similar is that to your perspective of the people around you? Um, So if you have your Bible or you got an app on your phone, flip up into Matthew 9. We're going to look just at four verses, Matthew 9, 35 through 38. And we're going to ask the question, what does Jesus see? when he looks at our campus, and I want to share with you three problems that he sees when he looks at your campus. Um, so can I pray quick while you're open to that, and then we'll dive into it. Um, God, I pray for uh, our time here today. Uh, we uh, walk across our campus every day and interact with 30,000 people um, from mostly all over the uh, Pacific Northwest, um, And I'm asking tonight that you would give us eyes to see people the way that you see people. Uh, And I pray that you would give us hearts to respond to people the way that you would. Uh, So I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Hopefully you had time to get there. Matthew 9. And we're looking at verse 35 through 38. Can I, I, I introduce to the three people that I know here, Jacob Stewart is my buddy, and Garrett Schlegel, 
Uh, Jacob moved here from Iowa. I, don't be fooled, he looks like he's from the Northwest, but he's actually from here. You got plaid and a beard and the haircut. You're actually the most stereotypical guy that I expect to meet. Jacob moved out here from our ministry at University of Northern Iowa, and Jacob, or Garrett came here from Colorado State. We all work together with Matthew and stuff. They joined me, and Cole. I know Cole. Um, okay. 35 through 39. It says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to the disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Okay, so when Jesus looks at the crowds around him, he sees three problems. I want you to turn to two people next to you and, and look at this passage and take your best guess. What do you think the three problems are that he sees? Go. And you've got to go quick. I'm going to give you about two minutes and then you're going to share. Three Jesus looks at, now we're not talking about Oregon State, we're talking about the crowds that were around him at the time. When Jesus looked at the crowd, what did he do? Okay, shortage of laborers. That's point number three. We'll get there. We'll work backwards. Yeah, there's a, there's a shortage of labor. There's harassed and helpless. Okay, they were sick. He saw harassed and helpless. Good, that's actually point one. Uh, I'm going to call it shepherdless sheep. Okay, what else? There's one more. One more that I mean, we could probably pick more on, but I'm focusing on three. So we've got shortage of labor. We've got shepherdless sheep. The harvest is plentiful. Okay. Well, that's kind of the half of that's half of the labor shortage. Yeah. Yeah, the labor shortage wouldn't be as big of a problem if the harvest wasn't plentiful. There's one more. Oh, I'm sorry. I just said it. Okay, yeah, you were right. You were on the one. I was confused. <laughs> what, did, what did you say? I said the harvest was plentiful. Okay, yeah, I don't, I don't know what I was thinking. You're exactly right. That is the third one. <laughs> so nailed it. Give him a round of applause. Hey, give that guy a corner. Um, so we have three things. We have shepherdless sheep. We're going to call it an overripe harvest. And we're going to call it uh, shortage of laborers. 
So can we talk, let's first talk about shepherd the sheep. Somebody take a shot at that. Explain what, what do we mean by that. What are, what are the shepherd the sheep he sees? We understand that we're not talking about literal sheep, right? Okay, that's a metaphor. People without a leader. Okay, who says that? Okay. People without a leader. Okay, why is that a problem? Because if nobody's leading anybody, then nothing's going to get done. Okay. If somebody at least saying get this done. Okay. Okay, other thoughts. Yeah, thanks. What's your name? Josh. Thanks, Josh. Lack of sense of identity. Okay, what do you mean by that? Uh, and like sheep that like sort of without purpose, without direction, and then therefore without a collective identity. Yeah. Okay. Okay. What else? They're wandering aimlessly. Yeah. Yeah, they're helpless, right? Doesn't mean he says that, doesn't he? Um, yeah. Did you say something about their? Yeah, they're harassed and helpless. Um, so when sheep don't have a shepherd, they wander aimlessly. What else happens to sheep who don't have a shepherd? They get lost. They get lost. They get eaten. Yeah, by what? Wolves. Wolves, bears, whatever. It's something. Sheep, I think. Has anybody ever had like a good like lamb chop? They are very delicious, and they're very slow. They have zero self, zero ability to defend themselves. Uh, they are like little cream puffs for predators. Uh, they, he describes this crowd, and he looks at them and says he has compassion on them. Because they're like sheep that have no shepherd. So they're wandering aimlessly, and they are super vulnerable, and they're, they're harassed, and they're helpless. Um, one thing that I've been doing since I've been on campus, so kind of understand my context, you look at the ministry that you're in, Young Life College, uh, I don't, it sounds like this is kind of normal, maybe a little smaller than group than normal. You guys got a pretty decent number of people involved. Um, the navigators at this point, one of the reasons we were asked to come out here is because for whatever reason, the navigators just don't have much going in the Pacific Northwest. So I was you know, asked if I would come help kind of get it restarted here at Oregon State and help establish Oregon State as a training campus where we can bring, other, bring in other future staff and train them and send them to other campuses across the Pacific Northwest. Because if you look across uh, Oregon, Idaho, I almost said Iowa, Oregon, Idaho, and Washington, and Alaska, apparently. Um, yeah, you'll see you'll see different groups, but you won't see many navigators. Um, and so we get here to town. We don't really know anybody. Um, we got a, a, a small staff team with us, and um, we're just asking God, would you use us to do what you want with us on campus? But we don't really we don't have a college group to plan. Um, so what we spend a lot of our time doing is uh, being on campus, meeting people, initiating spiritual conversations, um, and trying to give God the opportunity to give us people to invest in. And so one thing we've been doing is we have been surveying a bunch of people um, and just creating opportunities to have discussions. So what we've been using is this uh, little five-question survey um, that's pretty non-threatening for people, but it gives us opportunities to bring up Jesus. Um, but there's five questions that we ask that uh, you can use to really evaluate in a short conversation with people kind of what their worldview is and the way they look at the world. And so the first question um, I like to ask people is a question on origin, and ask, uh, hey, tell me, how do you think we got here? And they're always not quite sure what you mean. I mean, like, well, the human race, how did we get here? Um, and you can maybe guess, but the common answer I get at Oregon State University is, uh, how do you think we got here? Well, I, I, I ascribe to the Big Bang Theory, so I, I guess I believe that we've, as humanity, have evolved over uh, a few million or billion years. 
And so then the, the second question, which comes from that, then is, okay, if, if, if that's how we got here, what do you think our purpose is? And what's interesting is the almost the unanimous response, if the first answer, the question answer was the way it was, the almost unanimous response is there is no purpose. Um, there is no universal purpose. If you have any purpose for your life, you're going to have to come up with it for yourself. But there is zero universal purpose that covers this all. Um, so then the third question, that's origin, purpose. The third question is uh, problem. The third question is what do you think is the biggest problem in the world? Um, the average beaver responds to me, uh, tells me that uh, they kind of give me a blank stare. What do you think is the biggest problem in the world? Boy, I have no idea. There's a ton of them. Prob and then almost <laughs> most of them, the best they can come up with was something about climate change or uh, like poverty somewhere in Africa. Those are probably the two biggest problems. So that's, that's origin, purpose, problem. Fourth question is, well, if that's the biggest problem, what do you think the solution is? And they haven't. Um, usually it's about educating people on something. Um, and then uh, the fourth question is a little bit of a, I don't left field a little bit, but what do you think happens to you when you die? Uh, and on this question is almost exclusively uh, blank stares also. Um, and, you know, I have, I have no idea. Uh, I don't think we can know. Uh, if I'm honest, I think we just disappear and we cease to exist, which to me is a very hopeless thought. Um, and then I also have a lot of students quickly respond, I think we just disappear, but I think it's really important to not worry about what happens after life. We need to think about now. Um, and when I read this passage, uh, an interesting follow-up question I like to ask sometimes is, uh, how often do you... You know, I, I, I cease to exist, I'm not here, and there is no purpose for my life. And I asked, does that bother you at all? And, you know, honestly, most people say, no, it doesn't really. I really don't ever think about it. Um, and when I think about this passage, and Jesus says when he looked at the crowds, he saw harassed and helpless, uh, like sheep without a shepherd. Um, if, those, if that's the only answers we have to some of the big, biggest questions of life, I don't know how you could possibly have a general state of existence other than total hopelessness and total purposelessness. I think if we follow that to its logical conclusion, what the heck is the purpose of anything? Um, you honestly might as well just get <coughs> trashed and have sex as much as you can and until it kills you, because what's it matter? You're going to die and you're not going anywhere. Um, hopeless. Uh, and I think the only way we can avoid that extreme hopelessness is if we just don't think about it. So I think that's our best defense, is just trying to think about it. Um, or, uh, that's helpless, shepherdless. Um, the other end of this is harassed. Now, as I think about these students that I interact with, on a really common basis, they don't, really that person probably has every reason to kind of feel harassed and feel hopeless. <clears throat> but generally, they don't really think about it, but the group of people I interact with who most often feel harassed is actually uh, believing students. They're the ones who have a feeling of being feeling harassed and feeling more helpless. Somebody take a shot at what I might need my what that might be. I think the average believing student would feel harassed about. Like they're judged for their, for their beliefs. 
Okay, maybe. I don't, I don't, yeah, maybe. How's that? Choices they make. Okay. Free time. Like, uh, okay, tell me more. Uh, yeah, believers probably don't party, they don't um, do a bunch of different stuff that's pretty common. Okay. Could be. Sure. How about anything else? Go one more. Okay, feeling overwhelmed, maybe? Yeah. I, uh, as I interact with believing students, um, th this is obviously generalities, this isn't all 100% tr true, but I meet a lot of young believing students who, if you really sit down and ask them um, on a spiritual level, they experience a, a ton of doubt about their eternal salvation. Um, generally, maybe kind of know the right answers. Uh, but if it really came down to it, uh, how do I even know if I really am saved? How can I actually be confident that after I die, I'll experience eternity in heaven? Um, that's not all believers. But I think a lot of young believers, that when it really comes down to it, um, I'm bothered by a doubt that I don't know if this is really true of me. Um, and I wonder if, I, if that's you, I wonder if you know that uh, the scriptures teach that we can be really certain. First uh, John 5.13 is where John says, uh, write to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Um, I see a lot of college students who experience a lot of doubt about whether God loves them, um, especially paired with guilt about their sin. And so college students who are struggling with sin and kind of fall in this nasty cycle of like, I feel like I'm doing pretty well. And I feel like God really cares about me. And then I do that thing again. And now I'm just feeling overwhelmed with guilt. And so I'll work and try to apologize and I start to feel better and then I do it again. And there's a cycle, kind of a downward cycle where I find myself uh, in my bed at night and trying to ask God to forgive me again, but uh, feeling like there's like a barrier in the ceiling between me and him. And he can't possibly be listening to me anymore because I realize he's not going to send me to hell because he's kind of hooked in to... Uh, I believe in Jesus, so my sins are forgiven, but I think he's really annoyed with me. Um, man, I feel, like, I, I feel like I've interacted with a lot of college students that struggle with that, and I have struggled with that a lot in my walk with Jesus. Um, and I remember specifically a day when I was a college, college junior, and I was sitting in my blue S10. Uh, it's pretty pathetic. I drove this little single cab, blue Chevy S10. Uh, and I happened to be listening to a sermon that was in my car on a cassette tape, which is that dates me a little But Bill, the pastor, uh, on that message was talking about 2 Corinthians 5.21 where it says, um, uh, it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. And I don't know why. I mean, I understood this before, but I hadn't applied it to the way I was feeling. And it, I had to put my car in park because I'm not really a crier. But I found myself just bawling in my truck because I realized when God looks at me, he sees Jesus. And it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin. So it's describing when Jesus was hanging on a cross, Jesus was sinless, right? He's the only person who's ever lived a sinless life like the one that I'm really trying to live. And he hung on a cross and he became sin. And the reason he became sin, uh, it says, he who had no sin became sin for us so that in him 
we could become the righteousness of God. So, I'm completely unrighteous, and Jesus is completely righteous. He hangs on the cross to become unrighteousness for me, so that in him, I can be righteous. What this means is an exchange happened. And so, if, I, if my faith is in Jesus, when he was on the cross, my sin is taken from me and put on him. And then his perfect righteousness is then taken from him and put on me. So even right after I've sinned, if I'm in Jesus, when God looks at me, he doesn't see a sinner who he is now obligated to let into heaven. He looks at me and he sees Jesus' record. And I don't know if that makes the connection for you, but something there clicked for me. It's like, up to that point, I knew he wasn't going to send me to hell, but I think I just thought he was annoyed with me. But that he looks at me and he sees Jesus' righteousness. Um, Think, I think believers are harassed by a doubt of salvation, uh, a doubt of God's love for them, a crushing guilt uh, about our sin, a belief that God can't use me. Um, but Jesus says in, 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 in Matthew 4, 19, he says, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Uh, there's a promise there. If you'll be a follower of Jesus, if you, there, there, is, there is a challenge there that I think we do have to look at ourselves and say, if I'm not fishing, I'm not really following. But there's the other side of the coin that says, if you'll follow him, he will make you official. He can use you, and he would like to. I, I, the reason I'm telling you this is this. I, I think that... So if I were Satan, and that's kind of a weird way to start a sentence, but <laughs> if I were Satan, I would have two objectives for you, and it depends on who you are. If you are the average college guy at Oregon State, and you don't know Jesus, so you're still walking in your sin, and after you die, you'll spend an eternity separated from him in hell. My objective for you is to get you to not think about it. And I want you to be as comfortable as possible. Um, I want to assure the lost. And I want to harass the saved. So if you're not in Christ, I want you to be as comfortable as possible in that, uh, if I'm Satan. And if you are in Jesus... I want to put as much doubt in you as I possibly can. Um, I think this is still the case. You know, what do you see when you look at uh, your campus? When you see 30,000 students? Um, I, don't, I don't know what you see when you look, but I think when Jesus sees uh, students at Oregon State, I, still, I think he still sees harassed and helpless sheep. Um, harassed and helpless people like sheep without a shepherd. I don't think anything's changed. Number two is an overripe harvest. Uh, you, you've listened to me for enough. To, uh, turn to your neighbor and brainstorm a little bit. What do you think you mean by overwrite harvest? Discuss that. Uh, What's he mean by that? Overwhelming number of uh, lost individuals. Okay. 
Could be. I think that's, yeah, I think that's getting there. Other thoughts? Harvest is plentiful. An abundance of people who would be saved if there was something to harvest them. Okay, so that's different than saying an abundance. I mean, that, that's not different, but it's an addition to saying there's, a, there's an abundance of people. What you're suggesting is there an abundance of people who would respond. Yeah, right? somebody that would say something. Because if, if, uh, if I said that the harvest was plentiful... Is that, in itself, is that a negative or a positive statement? That's good, right? So we're not talking about, like, this is not a desperate situation. I mean, it is desperate because of what's coming next. But in itself, an overripe harvest is a wonderful thing. It's a huge opportunity, right? An overripe harvest. Uh, do you guys know, I don't know if you do, you probably do, but do you know that that is not supposed to be the case in the Pacific Northwest? Right? General, I don't know if you guys know this about yourselves, but across the country, if somebody asks, hey, describe to me the spiritual state of the Pacific Northwest, I don't know if there's anybody in the United States that would say, well, I'd say it's like over, it's like a plentiful harvest. Um, there are, it is just crawling with people, begging for somebody to explain to them how to know the Lord. Um, that is not the opinion people have about you. Um, the reputation you guys carry across the country is that nobody here cares about God. Um, I, I, and it's not like coming from Iowa, it's like the mecca of like holy living or something like that. But we have a much more church environment than you guys experience in the Pacific Northwest. Um, to where when I began sharing with kind of like Christian folks in the Midwest, that we're going to think about moving up to the Central Northwest to serve at Oregon State University, the, the response is kind of like, oh my gosh, like you are going to the ends of the earth. Uh, they're all thinking, is that on top or below Washington? We don't even know. <laughs> Do you guys know that Corvallis sits in Benton County? Maybe you already knew that. Probably did it. Uh, do you guys know that statistically Benton County is the least religious county in the entire country? So statistically speaking, when you if you would poll the average Corvallian, what do we call people in Corvallis? I don't know. Um, the lowest percentage of people in this county, in any county in the country, ascribe to no religion at all. That doesn't mean it's the lowest percentage of Christians. It means there are fewer people in this county than anywhere else in the country who would say, I have no religious beliefs. That's the county you live in. Is that, that's, is that sound like overripe harvest? Uh, it sounds like exactly the opposite. Um, I'd like to suggest to you that what Jesus says here is exactly the case at Oregon State University. I think you live in an, a plentiful harvest. Um, and here's why I say that. I, I, I made a decision when we're coming out here. Okay, the reputation out here is that uh, everybody's secular. They're really, really liberal. Nobody believes anything about God, and they have zero interest in talking about these kind of things. Um, so I decided, well, I'm just going to test that and see if that's true. So one of the things we do in the, with the navigators is we try to um, help students um, with a simple way to communicate their message of the gospel with their friends who don't know Jesus. Uh, so we call it the bridge illustration. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Um, 
But I just kind of thought, well, that if this is true, then the least effective thing I could possibly do would be to begin to make a habit of approaching students in the Memorial Union. I figured out where that was. Um, and to say to them, hey, do you have a second to help me with something? I'm new to Oregon. I'm trying to get an idea of what people believe about God. Can I show you a quick illustration that communicates the main theme of the Bible? You just can't get a least, less effective strategy in the Pacific Northwest than to do that. That's what I figured. Um, and I was thrilled to find out, I think it took about two and a half months at Oregon State before I had anybody say no. Honestly, nobody turned me down. Um, and we had some absolutely wonderful conversations. Here's what I learned. Or Oregon has very few Christians. That's 100% true. But it has a ton of people who are very spiritually curious. And they are honestly really interested to know the truth if it's, if it's out there. I think they're very used to the idea that truth is relative and there is no absolute truth. And I believe they're wondering if that's actually true. And they feel like if there is a God out there, um, and if Jesus is the truth, I would like to know. And as long as you treat me like a reasonable person. Um, and that's not the case in Iowa. I would say if when I do that at a university in Iowa, probably 50-50, I'd get shut down. Um, I just think the harvest here is very But it becomes a problem because the labor is true. That's why I say there's an overripe part. So I want you to imagine. So I grew up in eastern Iowa. Uh, has anybody ever been to Iowa? Okay. Well, Jacob's from there. You've been to Iowa? Oh, yeah. One guy has, what the heck were you doing in Iowa? Hey, John Deere. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm from Waterloo, Iowa. Really? Yeah. I've, oh. I've seen them in real life. I've seen where they come from. Um, but like, the stereo, when I ask people in Oregon, what do you think Iowa is like? They tell me, uh, I guess, a ton of corn. That's exactly what it is. Um, if you get outside of one of the cities, which are very small, and very, it's kind of like eastern Oregon, the whole place. Um, and it's literally as far as you can see is corn and maybe silver. Uh, Mike, what's, and why, are you a hunter? Yes. I've never shot an animal. But, uh, I do hear that there's a lot of them to shoot there. Uh, uh, I would, I just never got the chance. Uh, how are we doing on time? I shut my phone off. We're about out. Nine out four. Yeah, we're all time. Uh, you want to stop here? We'll keep going a little bit. Uh, just give me this if you want me to ask me I'm done. My grandpa was a corn and soybean farmer for his entire life in uh, northeastern Iowa. And... Uh, the way it's laid out is our, if you get outside of the town, basically the entire state is square miles of gravel road. And inside each one of those square miles is 100% packed with rows of corn and some soybeans. And then there's, in every square mile, there's maybe two or three farmhouses. And that's, that's the way we roll if you get outside of the morning. Um, so my grandpa had a chunk of one of those square miles, probably a third of it, so I don't know how many acres that is. I, I grew up in town, so I don't know. But uh, grandpa's entire livelihood he got one paycheck a year, right? So he worked all year long, planted it, and did whatever he did to it. And at one point in the year, when it was time to harvest, he would harvest the whole thing. Um, so imagine a time when Grandpa didn't use a massive combine, which if you guys have never seen that, that thing's awesome. Um, but if it was before the days when they had that, and you have to harvest the corn by hand, you know what you need? A ton of laborers. So imagine my Grandpa has just had the best spring and summer rainfall and no bugs and he's had he's looking at his field and he has seen 
the biggest payday he's ever going to get. Um, and then it's time to harvest the crop. It's got to be this week. And he realizes all of his labor didn't show up. This is the situation that Jesus sees when he looks at the world. He, he looks at Corvallis, Oregon, and he doesn't say, oh my goodness, this is so hard. Like there is, these people are like stone hearts. They like, it's like rocky soil. They're all angry. If I say something about God, they're going to kill me. Um, it's like, he looks at your campus and he sees 30,000 people. Um, we, we played intramural frisbee last Thursday night out on the IM fields. And when you stand there, you're on the back of Weatherford Hall, right? When you look at the back of Weatherford Hall, you know what you see? Just little lights, all in rows. You know what each one of those lights represents? Two souls. In every one of those rooms, I think if we could hear what God hears, he sees dorms packed with bodies of people who are, in one way or another, begging for someone to show them how to for Jesus. Uh, your campus is overripe harvest and uh, shepherd the sheep and nothing has changed. That's the second problem. The third problem, and we'll try to pass through this one quick, is shortage of laborers. So he says the laborers are few. Somebody kept this up. What do you mean by that? They're just, they're, it's the harvest of a lifetime, and the fruit's just going rotten on the tree. Um, the problem is not that the work is impossible. The problem is that there are not workers to do it. Um, why? And I won't even, we won't even discuss it in small groups, but take a couple guesses. Why would laborers not work in the field? And let's talk farming first. So... What would be some reasons that people wouldn't do the work? It's, yeah, yeah do you think Jesus purposely chose the, uh, to, to describe the need he described laborers? This is hard work. It's sweaty. Um, if you've ever been in Iowa in the summer, it's really hot, and the humidity is crazy high. And then you go in a cornfield, and it's like, something about that makes it like 150 degrees hot. Yeah, it's not comfortable work. Does that apply to labor in the kingdom of God, do you think? Yeah. One of the reasons that nobody is doing the work is because it's hard work. Yeah, you've got to be patient with people. You've got to get laughed at sometimes. Um, this is not easy work. This is, it's, not, it's not so far above your pay grade that you can't do it. But it's just that it's hard. Okay, why else? Why would labor not? They don't know how. Yeah. Yeah, that's... That's really realistic. Um, now, I think if, if laboring is the picture, it's probably not rocket science. I mean, some of you guys that are engineers and some of the stuff, some of the math you guys are going into here. That's not, I'm University of Northern Iowa. We are a teaching school, so we do elementary education. You guys are really good. Laboring, it, it is hard, and it takes, it takes some skill. But I'm telling you, it's nothing that you aren't qualified for. Um, but maybe, give me some help on this. Maybe I'll say that why would laborers not labor? They're busy doing something else. <laughs> yeah, something else maybe looked more important. I think laborers don't labor because there is no glamour in it. Um, anybody that ever grew up as a kid and said, man, my biggest dream would not be a, not to own a farm. I want to be a hand on somebody else's farm. That's the dream. Right 
<laughs> People don't labor because it's not glamorous. Nobody writes an article in the newspaper about a laborer. Um, nobody gets a People magazine cover because you spent your entire life being a farmhand for somebody. Right? That's why we don't labor in God's kingdom because there's no glory in it. Um, not in this side of it. But we, we don't do it because we don't see it. We don't, we don't think it's, it, it's that any glory to it. Uh, I think we don't do it because we're afraid. Um, we're afraid of what people will say. Uh, I think also, here's the one that, that bites. It says, Jesus looks at the crowds and he has compassion on them because they're harassed and helpless like sheep and other shepherds. If we're honest, don't we not labor? Because we look at the crowd and don't have any compassion. Do I know that they're harassed? Do I know they're helpless? Do I know that if somebody doesn't do something, they're walking into an eternity, an eternity apart from God? Do I know that that's true? Yeah. Do I care? Maybe. <laughs> I, think, I think part of the thing that keeps us out of the game is that we don't have compassion. Um, or we don't think about it. That could be. We could take a quiz here, uh, and we're not going to do this, but hypothetically, imagine if we, um, I could ask for a show of hands, hey, how many of you guys would consider yourselves a Christian? Okay, don't raise your hand. But if you did, I think probably, there's probably a few guys that would say, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm here checking that out. But I think most of you would say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Okay? So then we might ask the question, um, how many of you experience 100% assurance that you're secure in your relationship with God, you're going to spend an eternity with Him, and when He looks at you, He's just pleased with what He sees. A lot of you keep your hand, I think a few hands would maybe, if I'm honest, I'm not sure. Um, I said, hey, how many of you, if we're supposed to be laborers in the heart, how many of you, if you pull out your phone right now, you could flick to your recent call, show me three or four guys who don't know Jesus, but if you called them to hang out Friday night, they wouldn't think that was weird at all. I think a few of us would say, that would be fine. Now, if you ask me to list out, here are my five best friends who don't know Jesus. I think if we were on very, a bunch of our hands would start going down. I just know Christian folks. That's not everybody, but I think a lot. How many of you, if I said, uh, can you name for me a friend of yours who is walking with Jesus today because you explained to Jesus? think if we're honest, a lot more hands instead of dropping. How many of us have ever been, been faithful to walk beside that person? And help them, be, help them learn to follow the shepherd. Um, help them learn to walk with Jesus and dig into the scriptures and apply it to their life. Learn to love God and obey his commands. How many of us have followed a person to become a maturity and helped them to become a disciple of Jesus? I think <laughs> our hands will probably begin slipping down again. And, um, I don't know if you're familiar with 2 Timothy 2 here. Uh, but it's the standard job description for a, a, a Christian. And it's the things you've learned from me, entrust them to reliable men who will then be qualified to teach others. Guys, how many of us have ever had the joy of having a friend not only meet Jesus, learn to walk to maturity? But how many of you guys could name a friend who is currently making disciples? Because you showed them. Um, I think a lot of us, our hands are dropping. And I don't mean that to shame us. But to be honest and say, guys, when we look around us, our campus is crawling with people longing to have a meaningful relationship with God. You know how, I think most of you probably know how, what they need to know and what they need to do to walk with Jesus. The harvest is still so plentiful. 
but the laborers are tragically few. I think when Jesus looks at our campus, I think he sees an overripe harvest of fruit going rotten on the vine um, and a tragic absence of laborers. I think the harvest is still plentiful. I think the laborers are still very, very few. Um, can I extend you a, a handful of challenges moving forward and then let you discuss in your group if you've got a couple questions? Um, what should we do then? I think we should ask our question, well, am I following the shepherd? Do I know how to walk with Jesus? Do I really believe that when he says the harvest is plentiful, it is, and there are massive opportunities around me? Do I believe that? Uh, do I have compassion for the lost around me? Am I willing to pray? Do you notice the only application Jesus gives? He lays out this situation and he says, Men, would you pray that the Lord would send laborers to the harvest? He's asking, you to, he's asking you to pray. God, would you send some people who know you? Send us somebody. Um, can I give you a warning with that? If you're willing to pray that prayer, do you know the next chapter, the next story it goes into? Jesus says, Guys, would you just be willing to pray that God would send laborers into the harvest field? Next chapter, as he splits them up by two and he sends them out to do the work. Um, please pray, but know that if you're willing to start praying, he likes to take prayers and turn them into laborers. And he would like to send you. Um, here's my four challenges. Pray regularly for laborers on your campus. Uh, would you ask God to make you one? Would you ask him to make you a laborer? Uh, would you figure out how to start feeding yourself with the Word of God? 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who has no need to be ashamed, but he correctly handles the Word of God. Do you know how to handle this? To apply it to your life? And if one of your friends comes running to your dorm room and begs you, could you show me how to walk with God? Do you know how? Okay? Master this. Uh, the third thing, the last one. Uh, well, I guess I got it. Develop friendships with non-believers. Find somebody you know who knows how to share the good news with somebody else and ask them to help you. Um, and this is the last one. And this is going to be way too much to ask of you. Uh, would you live in the dorms for four years? Stay in the dorms. This isn't like a command from God. He's not, you're not going to find it there. He doesn't tell you you have to stay in, in the dorms. I know the reputation is that nobody stays in the dorms just like the losers stay in the dorms for four years. Have you ever considered that never... <laughs> one guy's like, hey! I did. I lived in the dorms for four years. Let me give you this thought. Never again in your life will you have a living environment where you have 250 people within 30 feet of your pillow who are just like you, same stage of life. They've got all kinds of time on their hands. Uh, they're asking questions like, who am I? What am I here for? And what am I going to give my life to? Uh, and they have all the time in the world. Um, you're never going to have that opportunity again in your life. If at all possible. I know it costs more. It stinks. The food's not too good. Uh, and everybody tells you what to do all the time. I know that those things are true. But I'd like to propose to you that you have no greater opportunity in your entire life to learn to be a laborer than in the college dorms. I think God created the dorms for the sake of the gospel going to the end of the earth. Can I pray? And then we're going to um, God, when I think of our campus, I can't help but think of Isaiah 49.6, that you say, uh, it would be too small of a thing 
for me to use you to restore the house of Jacob, but I would like to make you a light to the nations, that my salvation would go to the ends of the earth. I could see a hundred reasons why it would be too much to ask that you could use these guys to reach this campus. Um, but God, I know that it's too small of a thing, and the only thing that's worthy and big enough to ask you of is, God, would you, would you use these guys to help the lost to know Jesus, the immature to grow up to maturity, and to see disciples multiply on this campus in such a way that this campus would flood the ends of the earth. I'm going to take your salvation to the ends of the earth where people need to know you. So I pray this for these guys in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's give another round of applause for